He is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is in the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, we are in a brand new series uh, starting today in the book of Colossians. I couldn't be more excited about it uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, I am just... I just have a soft spot in my heart for the epistles. I don't know about you guys. Some books are just, you know, I just go to, gravitate to um, more readily and easily. And the epistles are those. Epistles just means letter if you didn't. If you're, if you're new to the church, this is an epistle. Um, Colossians is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. For me, as a, as a preacher, as someone who literally uh, gets paid to study the Bible and then to present it to you, which to me is the greatest job in the whole world, um, Every time I start a new book, I'm always really excited. So there's that. It's a part of the Bible. I'm excited to preach it because of that. But even more than that, I'm excited about this book because it's a letter written to a church that is a lot like our church. And as I was studying it, I just couldn't help but see all of us in this uh, letter For starters, if you don't know anything about the church at Colossae, uh, Colossae, this church here, didn't really have remarkable leadership. It it wasn't led by an apostle. It wasn't founded by an apostle. Um, Unlike most of the other churches that we read about in the New Testament, it it wasn't founded by Peter or Paul, uh, which is kind of rare. Uh, It wasn't led by a famous pastor like James or John. Uh, It didn't have leaders who used to sit at the feet of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I read the New Testament, and I just kind of think, like, this isn't fair you know, like if you go to the church at Ephesus, started by Paul, greatest evangelist Apollos, like led by Timothy, the apostle John's an elder, and you're like, of course they're going to be an awesome church, you know? And then you look at this church, and it's not like that. It's actually started and led by a guy named Epaphras. Anybody ever heard of Epaphras before? If, you, well, if you've read this book, you have. Of course you have. Anybody like outside of this book ever heard of Epaphras? No, of course not. He's just a normal dude. He's just an average guy. And he just so happened to hear the Apostle Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus. And then he took the gospel 100 miles away. It's like we're starting a church. (laughs) I love it. If you're familiar with Acts, um, if you're not, I'll just tell you about it. Acts 19 is this really emphatic, powerful statement where, where Paul is preaching in Ephesus, he's been preaching there for two years. And after he preaches there for two years, there's this statement. And it says, after Paul preached for two years, everyone living in Asia heard the gospel. Look that up later. Acts 19. How did that happen? Paul preaches in this city, Ephesus, in, in Asia Minor. And somehow, after two years, everyone 
and the whole continent has heard the gospel. Well, it's because of guys like Epaphras. Happened to be traveling into Ephesus, which is port city, big city, is, you know, kind of like a, a New York, like that's where all the action was. So people are coming in and out of the city, and then they're taking the gospel hundreds of miles away. And that's what Epaphras did. And so he's planted a church 100 miles away from Ephesus in Colossae. Um, it's just a normal guy, and I love that. I'm just a normal guy too, by the way. That's why I love it. On top of that, uh, this church is relatively young. If you're new here, we're young too. I know our church building is 70 years old, so maybe that's confusing to you. Um, but we are two and a half years old right now. Uh, we are, we're a toddler church, and I have a two-year-old, and I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> they call it the terrible twos for a reason. Um, even though I don't feel like we're experiencing that in our church, we are uh, a two-and-a-half-year-old church. While it, uh, Colossae was uh, a growing church, it was a faithful church, but it was also a young church, just like us. And as a young church, as a toddler church, it needed insight. It needed wisdom. It needed instruction from the Apostle Paul if it was going to grow up in the right way. I shared with our team as we were praying over the service earlier, God's been doing some awesome stuff in the last year in spite of a pandemic, because of a pandemic, you know, however you want to view it. Um, he's growing us, not just on a Sunday morning, but people are being saved, they're being baptized, new converts are being discipled, and now discipling other people. In fact, I'm not even going to, I got to call them out, because it's just like the coolest story of God working, like, these guys literally got saved in our neighborhood, and they've already started a new life group in Southend. And it's just incredible. Like, God's doing awesome stuff, and it's so cool to see, but we're two and a half years old. Like, we're, we're toddlers, okay? And, and as your pastor, I just, I, I see God growing us, and it's exciting, if you've been here for five months, you see it. If you've been here for a year, you really see it. If you've been here for two years, you're like, what's going on? God's growing us, but we've got to make sure we're growing up in the right way. That we don't get twisted, that we don't get off track, that we don't get distracted, that we don't get caught up in the growth and the hype and all that kind of stuff. So we need wisdom. We need insight. We need instruction from this letter just like the Colossians did. So I, I, I love this letter because as I was studying it, I just kept seeing us. We are this church. And I'm going to show you that a little bit more today. Really, all we're going to do today is I'm, I'm going to introduce this letter to you. And I'm going to introduce it to you by giving you sort of a 30,000-foot view of, of what's going on. And, and I want to show you three main ways that Paul is going to help the Church of Colossae and our church in our growth process, how he's going to give us this wisdom and insight and instruction. Um, we're going to get the 30,000-foot view today, and then for the next several months, we're going to zoom in. Um, so hopefully, this will whet your appetite, and you'll come back. Hopefully, it will leave you saying, man, I wish that we could have gone deeper, because that's where we're going to be doing for the rest of who knows how long. Um, but for today, here are uh, really the three main ways that Paul is going to help a growing and developing church, um, and we're going to just put ourselves right in the shoes of the Colossians. Okay, first, Paul is going to help the church with words of encouragement. 
Paul is going to help the church with words of encouragement. If you have your text, hopefully you do. If you need a Bible, by the way, we've got free Bibles in the lobby. Just go and grab one. Um, if you have a phone, download an app. But there's really nothing better than holding, okay? I know I'm old, but just get a Bible. Um, okay, Colossians 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Look at the greeting with me, these first couple of verses, and I want to show you this encouragement. Paul starts out by saying this, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the kind of greeting that you would expect to find in a letter of encouragement. It's not like Paul's letters to the Corinthians, not like Paul's letters, uh, letter to the Galatians, the church of Galatia. Um, I don't know if you remember, but the, the church at Corinth was sliding into moral failure, doing all kinds of really gross stuff, and they were arrogant and, and proud about it. Church at Galatia, uh, people were slipping away from the foundations of the gospel. They were believing all of this heresy that in order to be a true Christian, you had to be a Jew and all of this kind of stuff that went with that. And so Paul's letters to those churches were really harsh. Paul's not a nice guy in, in the way that he interacted with that, uh, those situations. This letter, though, isn't like that. Everything that we're going to look at in this letter comes after a greeting in which Paul has called these people faithful brothers. Circle that, because I want to show you the grace in that title. It's so important because Paul is actually going to confront some really serious theological issues in these people. Um, Paul is going to expose a lot of wrong thinking in these people. He's going to open their eyes to a slippery slope that they're on, which if they stay on it, will lead them away from Christ altogether. And yet, he calls them faithful brothers. He starts off with words of encouragement. There is so much grace in this, guys, because um, it shows that even though they weren't like 100%, like just the most stout theologians in the world, and even though they were getting some stuff wrong, he, he saw their effort. He saw that their heart was to follow Christ, and so he encourages them. There, there was a painter named Benjamin West who was working in the late 1700s. Maybe you've heard of him because he, he was really famous for historical scenes. Uh, you probably saw some of his paintings in a history book. Maybe you've seen him hanging in a museum if you've ever been to Scotland. Or you know, a cool place like that. Um, but in one of his memoirs, he talks about how he loved to paint as a little kid. And whenever his mom would leave the house, he'd get all of her oils out and all of her paints out, and he'd just go to town. And one day, his mom went out, and he got all of the oils out, and he started painting, and he made a massive mess. It was chaos, and he knew he was in big trouble, and so he tried to clean it up as fast as he could, but he didn't finish in time. His mom came home, and she saw it, and he just knew. He was anticipating the scolding, the whipping. He didn't know what was coming, but he knew he was in trouble. He said, what happened next completely surprised me. She picked up my painting, and she said, what a beautiful painting of your sister. And then she put it down, and she gave him a kiss on his cheek, and she walked away. West wrote, with that kiss, I became a painter. 
The Colossian church was trying to paint a picture of Jesus. They were giving it their best. All of their effort, all of their attention, their attitudes, their actions. But we're going to see this in a minute. They were making a mess of it. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't going that great. That's why Epaphras actually went to Paul to try to ask him for help, ask him for advice. And yet Paul doesn't come along with a tirade. He doesn't come along with a belt. He doesn't come along with a rant. He comes along with a kiss of encouragement. That's how he starts. To all of the saints, to all of the faithful brothers. And like Benjamin West with that kiss, guys, they were set on the path of faithfulness. I want to say to you as your pastor, I want to encourage you as your pastor, I see so much desire and effort and attention to wanting to be followers of Jesus. And we're pretty raw. <laughs> okay? Like, we're figuring stuff out as we go. We are trying so hard to get systems of discipleship in place. We're trying so hard to get life groups up and running. We're trying so hard to deal with a pandemic and raise up leaders and all of this kind of stuff. And it is a mess. Amen? Amen. <laughs> but be encouraged. And I mean that. Be encouraged. God sees our effort and he's pleased with it. This is, this is what we do with children, right? We encourage children. We encourage two-year-olds. We're two, right? We're two. My two-year-old daughter can hardly jump, but she started making the effort. And so whenever she does this, I mean, she doesn't even get off the air, but I'm clapping for her. You did it. Good jump. When she pulls out a marker and she scribbles on the paper, she's like, Dad, Dad, that's beautiful, baby. Give me a hug. I'm encouraging her. When my son Nicholas, who's almost eight, juggles a soccer ball 19 times, which is his new record, it's 19 times is nothing. But for him, it's like, come on, man. United is calling. Let's go. When my daughter, Livy, who's learning how to read, when she reads, the cat sat on Sam. Oh, man. She might as well have walked on the moon. Ah, double high five. You're the best reader. You're doing incredible. This is what we do with kids. When they fall, we pick them up. When they make messes, we clean them up. When they start walking off the path, we pull them back. And all the while, we're building them up and we're affirming them. You're doing a good job. Keep going. That's how this letter starts. Be encouraged. That's what God wants to do with this church. He's guiding Paul to write this letter. No, they're not perfect. Yes, they're making a mess. Oh my goodness, they are believing some really weird stuff. They need to get back on track. But God saw the effort and he was cheering for them. And so everything that's said in this letter flows out of that. You see it? All right. Second, Paul is going to help the church with words of protection. Turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 
Skip to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So it's really clear that the Colossian believers are in danger of falling into some sort of theological error. It's really significant. Um, Paul never actually comes out and names it. He doesn't give us the specific error. Like in Corinth, he gives it. In Galatians, he gives it. But here, he doesn't name the specific heresy. Scholars have written volumes on what it could have been. Um, Some argue that it was the Gnostic heresy. Uh, The Gnostic heresy denied the deity of Christ and all kinds of other crazy stuff. Um, Some scholars argue that it was the Jewish heresy, which denied the sufficiency of Christ. If you want to be a Christian, yeah, it's it's Christ, but it's also Abraham. You've got to follow all of the feasts and all of the festivals and all of the rituals and all of that. Some argue that it was a sort of local Phrygian practice that was more pagan and more ritualistic. But while there isn't really a consensus among scholars, and there are all of these different ideas being presented, the vast majority that I found in my study, the vast majority all agree that it was actually a blend of these three things, that it was very syncretistic. It wasn't Gnostic, it wasn't Jewish, it wasn't Phrygian, it was actually all of them combined. And this is really fascinating to me, and I'm going to explain it in a minute, but let me give you some scholarly stuff here because I know you love that. Um, Clinton Arnold, who's the dean of the Talbot School of Theology, wrote a 400-page book on this issue. <laughs> what is the Colossian heresy? 400 pages if you've got free time. Don't waste it on that. <laughs> he writes this. The Colossian philosophy represents a combination of Phrygian folk belief local folk Judaism, and Christianity. The local folk belief has some distinctive Phrygian qualities, but also has much in common with what we would call or describe as magic or ritual power. So basically, the local folk tradition at Colossae was to fight off evil by appealing to angels appealing to the spiritual realm through magic and all of these other things. On top of that, they had all of these ascetic practices and rituals that had been drawn from paganism, that had been drawn from Judaism, and all of that stuff had been picked up and propagated by Christians. And so Christianity and Colossae was just like this weird hodgepodge of all of it. Look at chapter 2, verse 16 with me, and I'll show you exactly what I mean because I think Paul comes as close to naming it as possible in this passage. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are all Jewish things, right? You might recognize that from Galatians. It's also pagan with the new moon and all of that. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. You see what's going on here in Colossae was that Christians were buying into this this idea that in order for them to experience the fullness of God, they had to go beyond Christ. That's really the root of the Colossian heresy. 
in order to experience the fullness of God, which, by the way, we were made for. The longing that you have in your soul is a longing that you have because it was designed to be filled with the fullness of God. So we're all made for that. We're all wired for that. We all long for that. The Colossians believed that if they were going to experience that, they had to move beyond Christ. They had to have more than Christ. Yes, Christ, but also angels and also visions and also all of these ascetic practices and also all of these rituals. And they had put together this own, their own program for how to experience spiritual fullness. Any of this ring a bell at all? They weren't subtracting from the gospel. They were adding to it. Yes, Jesus is great, but angels are, are really cool too. We need to worship them. Yes, the gospel is amazing, but you know what would be, what would, what would be really awesome? It's if we got some new revelation too. Yes, scripture is holy. Yes, it's incredible. But man, when was the last time you had a vision? That's where fullness is really at. If you really want to thrive and if you really want to flourish in your spiritual life, you've got to go beyond Christ. And this is the thing, guys. The false teachers were so preoccupied with their own program for spiritual fullness that they were actually separating themselves from the only true source of spiritual power, who is Christ himself. And so throughout this letter, Paul is going to show them that the fullness of God is found and it's experienced in Christ and Christ alone. He's above the angels. He's above the world. He's above all of creation. And he must be recognized and worshipped as supreme. That's what this whole book is about. Paul wants to protect this young and growing church from a philosophy that would drive them away from Christ and ultimately destroy them. Now, the thing that I find so fascinating about this, and I, I'm sure that you're connecting the dots right now as well, is that this um, syncretistic philosophy that the Colossians had adopted and that Paul needed to address in them is very similar to the philosophy that the church in America has adopted today. Modern American evangelical church is that. Let's unpack that for a minute. This will be fun. We have authors and pastors and musicians and thought leaders and theologians telling us that if we really want to experience the fullness of God, we have to go beyond Christ. We have to go beyond the gospel. In fact, one of the most popular Christian books in the last 20 years is exactly this. Honestly, many of you have probably read it. And again, I'm not attacking you right now. This is, again, flowing out of encouragement. It's messy, but we're flowing out of encouragement right now. Okay, don't forget that, please. You've probably read Jesus Calling. Maybe you've heard of it. Since it was published in 2004, it sold 30 million copies in almost 30 languages. Thing is, guys, about Jesus Calling is that most of the people I know who've read it just think it's a nice little devotional, and it is, and that's how you use it, and that's great. But for Sarah Young, who is its author, it's much more than that. Let me just show you what she says about it, how she describes her feelings in the introduction. She says this, I began to wonder if I could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I'd been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. 
I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible. Oh, man, if only there were a period there. But I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. And now we have Jesus calling, which is supposedly that revelation. Guys, this sounds a lot like what was going on in Colossae. Jesus isn't enough. The gospel isn't enough. Prayer isn't enough. I need something new. I need something fresh if I'm going to experience the fullness of God. Now, here's the thing. We might be able to shrug this off. It's just like a one-off. This is a, you know, Sarah Young, great, you know, one book, no big deal. 30 million copies, kind of a big deal, but just one thing. But it's not. Kim Walker-Smith, who's one of the most famous worship leaders and songwriters in the country, talks about her own vision of Christ as the turning point in her experience of him. It wasn't enough to just have, again, the gospel, just to have a, a, a normal Christian life. It was, I had to receive that vision. Bill and Benny Johnson, who are her pastors, uh, two of the most famous pastors in the country, teach that there are all kinds of different angels. This is really, it, this is going to get creepy. Um, they teach that there are fiery angels who are responsible for carrying out revival in the world. Um, in a blog post, Benny Johnson wrote, I think that they have been bored for a long time and are ready to be put to work. And then she tells this story about one of her students at the Bethel uh, Supernatural School of Ministry who claims God told her to go to chapel and yell to these angels, wakey, wakey. <laughs> Look at this. I'm not making it up. Nothing happened for about five minutes. So the student turned around to cross the road to go over to a shop. As she turned around, she felt the ground begin to shake and heard this huge yawn. I just pictured Jack and the beanstalk. Uh, she looked back at the chapel and a huge angel stepped out. All she could see were his feet because he was that large. She asked him who he was and he turned to her and said, I am the angel from the 1904 revival, and you just woke me up. And she asked him, why have you been asleep? And the angel answered and said, because no one has been calling out for revival anymore. <laughs> okay, I'll just withhold any comment on that. Um, not only that, uh, Bill and Benny also encouraged practicing something called grave sucking. Yes, I said grave sucking. Yes, it's as weird as it sounds. Um, they believe and teach that if you lay on the graves of dead people, you can soak up their anointing. Because that's what you need to experience the fullness of God. Look at how Bill Johnson put it in his book, The Physics of Heaven. He said, there are anointings and mantles, revelations and mysteries that have lain unclaimed, literally where they left because the generation that walked in them never passed them on. I believe it's possible for us to recover realms of anointing, realms of insight, realms of God that have been untended for decades simply by choosing to reclaim them and perpetuate them for future generations. Guys, this is a, this is a leader in the American modern American church. Add to that, Mark Batterson, a, pop, a popular pastor, author in Washington, D.C. I've actually sat under his teaching at a conference one time. Phenomenal, okay? That sermon was phenomenal. And that's where they always get us. Because most, like, 
a lot of these guys, it's like nine-tenths of it's awesome. That's how false teachers always work, though. They, they just kind of lull you to sleep with how awesome it is. And then it's like, wait a second, is that? Anyways, listen to this. Mark Batterson, D.C., teaches that the Christian life is to be marked by direct communication from God. And the result of that is one miracle after another. In his book, The Circle Maker, which maybe you've read, sold over a million copies worldwide, he teaches that essentially prayer is like the law of attraction. Anybody know what the law of attraction is? Yeah. Okay, well, we'll okay. We, got, we got ones here. We're good. Look at this. When you dream, your mind forms a mental image that becomes both a picture of and a map to your destiny. That picture of the future is one dimension of faith, and the way you frame it is by circling it in prayer. That's the law of attraction. Speak it to the universe. Think about it. Dream it. Get your vision wall up. Put your Tesla up there and your mansion and your vacation, and you just, you think it into existence. That's the law of attraction, right? Just call it prayer, and you're good. Name it and claim it. Pastors like this have basically adopted the law of attraction, new thought, the power of positive thinking, attached the word prayer to it, and have passed it off as Christian theology and Christian practice. The problem is that it isn't Christian theology. It's New Age theology. It's Eastern mysticism. It's found nowhere in Scripture. So I could go on and on here, but we'll save it for, you know, coming weeks and stuff. This is the point. We are just like the church at Colossae. Totally syncretistic. Do you know what true Christianity is? Do you know what false teaching is? Now, again, I'm saying this flowing out of encouragement. It's not because you don't want to know the truth and follow the truth and believe the truth. Do you know how to identify the truth? To tell what's right from wrong. We've grabbed ideas from the New Age movement. We've grabbed ideas from the occult. We've grabbed stuff from the self-help gurus and even from secularism itself, which we'll get to when we get to chapter two. And we've called it Christian here in America. It's messy. We have actually bought into the lie that if we want to experience the fullness of God, we need something more than he's already given us. Christ isn't enough. The gospel isn't enough. His word isn't enough. There must be something more. This letter is here for our protection. That leads to the final way that Paul is going to help this young and growing church mature Paul is going to help the church with words of direction. See, it's not just enough to know that there's a bunch of false teaching invading the church. You actually have to know how to deal with it. You can't just identify it. You've got to have like a course of action. All right, what are we supposed to do now? And Paul doesn't just want to correct their theology. He doesn't just want to correct our theology. He wants to give us a foundation that will keep us safe. And keep us secure so that for the rest of our lives, no matter what comes up, 
will be good. He wants to give us direction. The way he does this is by drawing our attention to the beauty and the glory and the supremacy of Christ. He is actually enough. He really is sovereign over all and sufficient for all. That's the theme of the entire letter. That's why we've called our series Above All, because that's what every little section in this short four-chapter book is about, that Christ is enough. Look back at chapter one with me again, and I'll show you. Cheryl read it. Let's read it again. Again, 30,000-foot view. I cannot wait to unpack this thing. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is above all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Where's the fullness of God to be found? In Jesus. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Paul wants to capture the imaginations of the Colossians with the beauty and the glory and the supremacy of Christ so that they will believe he's all they've ever needed. Because that's the truth. There's actually a perfect example of what Paul's doing in this letter in Homer's Odyssey. If you've ever read the Odyssey, you know that in this story, there are these creatures of deception called the sirens. Anybody like the Odyssey? Yes. Oh, man. We're all going to be great friends for years and years and years to come. They were these enchanting half-women, half-bird creatures that um, lived on this island in the Mediterranean Sea. And every time a ship would pass by, the sailors on it and everything, uh, these sirens would sing a beautiful song. It would be this enchanting melody. And it would lure the sailors to steer their ship off course and just almost like in a, in, a, in a trance, they would be drawn to the song and crash into the rocks. And then these beautiful sirens would turn into hideous nightmares and they'd swoop down and they'd devour the flesh of the sailors. Great story. Um, and uh, basically, as the story goes, there are only two men who ever overcome the sirens. You know who they are? Ulysses and Orpheus. They are the only two men who overcome these uh, enticing, enchanting half-bird, half-women. And yet they, they overcome them in two very different ways. And this is really important because you could almost view these as two different directions. And if you could view the sirens as false teachers, you just follow this, you're, you're smart, you'll put it together. Ulysses was fascinated by the sirens. If you remember, he knew they were deadly, knew they were dangerous, but he really wanted to hear the song. And so what he did was he got uh, 
wax and put the wax in all of his sailors' ears so that his sailors wouldn't be able to hear it. They wouldn't be able to change course. And then they tied him to the mast of the ship with nothing in his ears so that he could hear the song but not do anything about it. And so <laughs> they get you know, into the, the realm of the sirens and they start singing and the sailors can't hear anything and, and, you, and Ulysses is just like torturing himself because he loves it and he wants it and he wants more of it and he's like, oh man, change the, change the course, you know, go that way, but they can't hear him and they survive. That's one direction. Orpheus, on the other hand, was a famous musician and so when the Argonauts sailed into the treacherous waters surrounding the deadly island, you know what Orpheus began to do? began to play and sing. Orpheus's music was so exquisite, was so beautiful, it was so genuine, it was so compelling that the sirens no longer held any sway or any appeal for the crew. False teaching is a lot like the sirens. It's purposefully made to sound sweet. You will never hear a false teacher and be like, that was awful. I want none of that. Like the essence of false teaching is to tell you what you want to hear, to tickle your ears, to tell you that you are God or that you can control God, that you can get him to do whatever you want with a magic prayer or a whatever. It's enticing. It sounds sweet. It draws us in. It's alluring, but it leads us astray because it's deceptive and it's deadly. Its end is the grave. This short letter to the Colossians is meant to be like the Song of Orpheus. It's meant to drown it out with something better. Not to look at it and be like, oh man, I wish I could have that. You guys look like you're having so much fun over there that prosperity gospel, all those pastors drive like Lamborghinis and fly around in jets. Like Ulysses is like, oh, I want that. Uh, don't, don't, you know. Orpheus is like, no, there's something better. I want to play you a song. It's going to capture your imagination. Tune your ears to that and the false teaching won't hold any sway over you anymore. So what's the song? The song is that Christ is enough. The song is that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is sovereign, that Christ is supreme, that he is above all. Paul wants to help this young and growing church by directing them back to the preeminence of Christ. And that's where we need to go. He's planting their feet firmly on the solid rock of the gospel, which in the case of Colossians is everything pertaining to Christ. He's setting them free to flourish and thrive as God's people in the world. To actually live as a light that can not only recognize false teaching, but expose it and call people into the truth. We need the encouragement of Colossians. We need the protection of Colossians. And we need its direction as well as we grow up and mature into a church that brings Jesus' glory in the city. Amen? You excited to go through it? I am. Let's stand. Let's pray. We'll continue our worship service together.